Welcome back to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. To kick off the year, we're excited to bring you the first episode in a special series exploring Australia-Indonesia relations since the fall of Suharto. Throughout this series, David Engel, head of Aspie's Indonesia program, and Hilary Mansour, former Aspie research intern, interview former Australian ambassadors to Indonesia to plot the history of the country and Australia's part in it. The series will highlight some of the challenges faced by Indonesia and how the Australia-Indonesia relationship has changed over the years. In this episode, David and Hilary speak to John McCarthy, who was ambassador to Indonesia from 1997 until 2001. John was also ambassador to Vietnam, Mexico, the United States and Japan, as well as High Commissioner to India. Their conversation covers the fall of Suharto, President Habibi and the Reformasi era, East Timor, the election of Gustur, and Prime Minister Howard's engagement with the country's leaders. John, welcome to ASPI and thanks for joining us for this podcast series. Well, thank you. John, you arrived in Jakarta early in 1997. Indonesia's second president, Suharto, was still in power after more than 30 years in the presidential palace. But by the time you left in late 2000, Indonesia's economy had crashed. The country was on to its fourth president, and part of it had separated become an independent nation. So you had more than your fair share of critical moments during your tenure. But before looking at some of those moments... I'm interested in your expectations of the country when you arrived in Jakarta, especially having already served in the region as ambassador in Vietnam and Thailand. Look, I think the only thing that you know, was really expected at that period was that we would probably in the next four years see the departure of Suharto and that as a result of that there would be a very changed Indonesia not only would Indonesia change, but there would be implications for the region. After the first few months, it became more likely that Suharto would actually want to stay a bit longer. What, of course, brought about the final change was really the Asian financial crisis, its impact on Indonesia, the effective collapse of the economy, which accelerated pressure on him to leave and that's what of course happened but I don't think we expected it to happen quite in that way certainly when I first came into Jakarta in early 97. Well we'll come back to Suharto's ouster in a minute but when you came in in the preceding decade of the Suharto era there'd been a real expansion in Australia's relationship with Indonesia for example We'd worked closely together on the Cambodian peace process and the, we'd had the 1995 agreement on maintaining security. So how did you see your priorities for the relationship as you took up your post? I saw two, really. One was to keep what was then a very healthy relationship going, which meant there was a lot of you know routine work involved, large numbers of delegations, business groups coming through and, if possible, to expand in certain areas where we had always sought to expand with Indonesia, including, of course, the economic dimension, as well as doing more on security and and all the other areas that were in the relationship. Well, that's how it worked for the first six or seven months. 
But then the Asian financial crisis really changed everything. And I think probably from then on, which was August 97 effectively, until the end of 99, the job was principally about crisis management. I don't know there was much vision involved, really. I think what we were all thinking in the embassy is how do we get to the next step? Because so much happened in the following two and a half years or so. As you mentioned, you were ambassador during the fall of Suharto in May 1998, which was a time of major upheaval and a critical moment in Indonesia's history. What were your thoughts at the time about this event and on how it would impact Indonesia's future? Well, I'd like to think that I sort of thought all this through in a sort of cogent, coherent, visionary way. Frankly, during that whole period, you were spending most of your time thinking how you'd get to the end of the next week because so much was happening. But I think it became clear shortly into the financial crisis, and that would be about October, November, that Sahato's days as president were numbered, where there was a very considerable difference of view was whether it would be a few months or maybe two to three years. Sahato, of course, ran again for president in early 1998 with Habibi as his vice president. At that time, I think few of us saw it as likely that he would go for his full term. Something was going to happen. There was so much political momentum for change by that time. Did you have any expectations on how Suharto's exit would change the bilateral relationship? No. I think probably at that time, while Suharto was in a strong position as president, and even at the beginning of 97, we had established a solid and predictable relationship with Indonesia. And that, you know, was, is very important. Predictability in international relations is a great asset some of the time. I think our sense was that once Suharto left, there would be some very interesting changes, some of which we would welcome, including the greater democratisation of Indonesia. But that there would be a whole lot of uncertainty and that we would have to find our way through that uncertainty in really a new era. And so that was, you know, what I think preoccupied us. And in this new era, you observed the earliest phase of Indonesia's democratic transition under President B.J. Habibi, which was known as the Reformasi era. And during this time, major constitutional reforms allowed for a return to free elections, as well as decentralisation and other major social and legislative changes. How do you now look back on this early Reformasi era and what do you think were its most important legacies for today's Indonesia? Well, I think when we were going through the early Reformasi era, I don't think most of us realised how profound the changes were going to be over the long term. Clearly, a huge amount was happening. But I think a lot of the observers in Jakarta were somewhat confused by the style of Habibi. He was such an eccentric. He tended to make decisions on the run. 
you never knew what was going to happen next. So I think because of the way politics worked in the early months of Habibi's presidency, it was very hard to foresee that real progress was being made. Once we got to the end of Habibi's term and when, you know, major changes occurred again, I think there was a recognition that in a very short period this very unusual man had achieved a great deal. But you didn't get that feeling on a day-by-day basis. The overwhelming sense you got then was of chaos. But somehow structure emerged from that chaos. Well, on that theme of Habibi's unpredictability, in one of his most consequential moves as president was his decision in early 1999 to allow the people of the then province of East Timor a vote on whether to have special autonomy and stay within the Republic or become independent. This culminated, of course, in Australia's leadership from September that year of the intervention that quelled the violence that followed the vote for independence. How do you recall these events and what do they mean for how Indonesia has viewed Australia ever since? Well, again, the whole Timor saga, effectively from the time I delivered the letter from Prime Minister Howard to President Habibi just before Christmas in 1998, was one where Really, it was very difficult. And I come back to this point I make about seeing beyond a certain period, two or three weeks. And quite frankly, that for the whole year, that was my feeling, my perspective. Now, there are others who would claim to have much greater vision as to what was going to occur during that year. Well, I wasn't one of them. It was a sense of going from one step to another and trying to make the best fist you could of some very, very confusing developments and some very confusing facts and trying to work those broadly in the direction in which you wanted to go. But it has to be recalled that Australian policy, when we started out on this Timor initiative, was not to have an independent East Timor. In fact, Both Howard and Downer claimed that was not our objective. What we were claiming was the best route to autonomy and a peaceful East Timor. Then events took on a momentum, of course, of their own. And I think by the middle of 1999 or April 1999 even, I think our view had changed, not through specific government statements, but just the sense of what the Australian government wanted was that things had developed in such a way that if East Timor did not become independent, we would have some pretty severe problems, not only domestically, but with Indonesia. And how, just to follow up on that, how then do you think the experiences of Australia's intervention in East Timor have shaped the way Indonesia looks at us now? Look, I think once so much, of course, so much happened in that two years that it's difficult for Australians to realise that Timor was only one aspect of change in Indonesia. For us, it was the overwhelming fact of 1999. Everything sort of consumed us. Everything about Timor consumed the overall picture of what was happening in Indonesia. The Indonesians 
they were going through domestic changes of a huge dimension. They also, of course, had problems to do with separatism or religious differences in a number of parts of the country, Aceh, Maluku, Sulawesi, all, you know, it was simply not just Timor. And, of course, Irian Jai continuing as an issue. So it was bigger for us in that sense than it was for them. Although it was big for them, I don't want to suggest it wasn't. Now, once the decision was made by the people of East Timor and the government understood that there was really no way other than to accept that decision, it was put to the parliament and the decision was taken to relinquish East Timor. After that, the strong sense one got politically was that the East, that the Indonesians really wanted to put, put it behind them. They didn't want to talk about it. It was something they felt they'd had to handle very badly. There were aspects of it that made them very uncomfortable and it really didn't come up much as an issue in conversation. It did, of course, with me because it was only a year later, but in, in subsequent years it didn't with, with, with Australians. So I think there was very much that sense of wanting to put it behind us. However, I think particularly in military circles, there is always a lack of comfort, a certain suspicion about what Australia's actions Australia might take in the future. And that particularly relates to Arian Jaya. And so I don't think we can just forget or we can just say to ourselves, look, Timor's over, the Indonesians aren't concerned about it anymore. I don't think that's the case in their, in, in their thinking, particularly in military circles. I think there is that sneaking concern that something else might happen. And uh, we have to, I think, be conscious of that. You mentioned the many domestic changes throughout Indonesia occurring around 1999. That was also the year that Indonesia staged its first free national elections since 1955 and indirectly elected Abdurrahman Wahid, a.k.a. Gustur. Gustur was also the leader of the world's largest Muslim organisation, the Nadlatul Ulama. What did Gustur's rise to presidency say about Indonesia's emerging democracy, particularly about the place of Islam in the nation and its politics? Well, you know, he, he was an unusual man and he wasn't the favourite. So it said that, you know, uh, something about the system was working in that it wasn't, you know, the election didn't fit preordained views about who was going to be elected from the main political groupings within the country, the main parties like Golka, for example. But however, his election also didn't represent the rise of Islam in Indonesia in the way that we currently accept the use of that sort of term. He was a cleric. His party was based on Nadatul Alama, which is, of course, a major Islamic group. But the objectives of the party were not an Islamic state. And he was far from being a mullah who favoured extreme forms of Islam. He was a very moderate man. So I didn't see Gustur's election in the context of Islam particularly. It was a fact, but, you know, it was a factor in what was happening in Indonesia at the time. But 
what you saw subsequent to that election was not so much the growth of Islamic parties, but the growth of Islam in the country as a whole, which affected the approach of parties which were secular as well, like like Golka and PDI and so on. They moved closer towards Islam because that was the global trend and the regional trend. John, what were your thoughts about Indonesia's future as you left Jakarta at the end of 2000? And how different are they from your view of Indonesia now? Look, I think when I left Indonesia, there was still a lot of chaos around, particularly Archer had not been sorted out, Irinjaya still had issues, there were issues in other parts of the country. And one thing that really had been set in place, but which had a long way to go, was decentralisation. And you had the sense that there were centrifugal forces in Indonesia and you didn't know where they were going to end up. The economy had not come out of the doldrums, far from it, but there was a sense of life and exuberance, certainly amongst the educated classes in Indonesia, which made it an entirely different place to that which I visited, to which, to, to which I'd arrived at in 1997. The difference now is I think they have made progress. If I'd been asked in 2000, where I saw Indonesia in 2020, I think I would have got some things right and some things wrong. I think I would have got right the elements of democracy that we take pretty seriously in Australia that grew in Indonesia, such as freedom of the press, a parliamentary system that had faults but somehow worked, was an expression of the views of the people of Indonesia. I think I would have broadly got that right. I wouldn't have got right the strength of the Islamic movement in Indonesia because I don't think I would have got that right anywhere in the world. But that has, I think, been stronger than most of it. Most of us would have thought. I think I would have got right that... Indonesia under a democratic system might not have the regional force that it had under Suharto because Suharto was such a preeminent leader in Southeast Asia. Despite you know, all the faults of authoritarianism, he was certainly very, very you know, highly respected and he basically got his way for Indonesia. I think Indonesia has perhaps lost some of its international clout post-Sahato. At the same time, uh, I suppose this is coming back to the democracy point, if somebody had told me in 2000 that 20 years later Indonesia would be arguably the first or second most democratic country in Southeast Asia, I would have been surprised. And it scored in that sort of rating in most of the assessments of democracy in the region. So uh, on the whole, I think it's come out pretty well. I think probably it's come out looking at the, the, the whole picture of Indonesia in a sort of uh, complete way. I'd say it's come out ahead of where I would have guessed 20 years ago. 
I think the relationship with Australia, we got over the traumas of Timor quite quickly. And I think the relationship probably grew with its high point being Howard's announcement of the gift of $1 billion post the tsunami. Since then, I think it's a question of our putting you know, more political energy into it. My sense now is we're putting a lot of political energy into the alliance, into our relations with Japan and India, and that's for strategic reasons. But I think we'd make a bad mistake if we didn't put the equivalent amount of energy into Southeast Asia, which is, after all, the area of contestation between the West and, and China. And I think you know, we need to take note of that. And Indonesia, of course, is central to Southeast Asia. If you could put down a few key priorities for Australia vis-à-vis Indonesia, what would they be? Well, I think the first thing, and this is a view that I have about Australia's dealings with Asia generally, is the Australian population needs to be a lot more educated about Asia. That is a, a serious deficiency now. I mean, we have dropped off our knowledge of Asia dramatically in the last 30 or 40 years. And that in itself means we basically pay more attention to the country. It's getting Australians to focus on the immediate horizon, you know, the immediate region. It's, it's absolutely crucial. We don't do that. No, nothing like enough. It's all about China and the US right now. And we need to get back to the reality of you know, what is happening in our neighbourhood. So, first of all, the best thing we could do for the Indonesia for Indonesia is basically educate Australians about Indonesia. Second, we need to engage them in the areas where we have real expertise and where we can help them, not so much through donations of huge amounts of money, but through really sensible and focused exchanges. And this comes down to the areas where we really are respected. And that's agriculture, it's water, it's mining, it's medicine. Those are the sorts of areas we should focus on, in my view, rather than what you might call the social areas of the relationship. The other thing, and that really comes down to knowledge, is in terms of public diplomacy, make sure that Australians spend a lot more time up in Indonesia with a focus, bring Indonesian visitors down not just to spend time, but really to concentrate on certain areas that are of interest to them. We need much bigger visitor programs. And then I think defence, our relationship, is a pretty good one, but we have to bear in mind in dealing with Southeast Asian countries, and Indonesia is, is probably the prime example of this, is that they simply don't see the issue of China and the West in the same way as we do. They have their own preoccupations with China. Believe you me, they want to stay independent, but they have a view that they want to go about it in a different way to the way we do, and the Americans, Japanese, and even the Indians. And if we don't understand that perspective and work with them on that perspective, our diplomacy will not do nearly as well as it should. I don't want to say it'll fail, but it will let us down. Thank you. Well, John, I can't think of a better way to end it than to hear your thoughts on all of those countries of which you've been ambassador or high commissioner, I, I would add. So 
Well, John, many thanks again for, for coming in here and thanks for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. Delighted. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We look forward to bringing you another episode soon. Thanks for listening.